Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. I'm your host, Hannah MacDonald, and I'm hopefully your new bookish pal. As you can tell, for this episode, I was recording without Lydia as she was unavailable, and I hope that you will still enjoy this episode with me and the wonderful Jason Allen Person. As you can probably also tell, my audio is not the best, as for this episode, I did not have all of my usual equipment to hand, so I'm without a mic for this one, and for the poorer quality of audio, I can only apologise. But please do enjoy the episode, and if you enjoy it, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Welcome to our special mini-sode in collaboration with the wonderful Forward Prizes for Poetry, the most widely coveted awards for new poetry published in the UK and Ireland. The prizes have been run by the Forward Arts Foundation since 1992 and over the last three decades has recognised some of the most exciting talent in contemporary poetry, including Simon Armitage, Seamus Heaney, Caroline Duffy and Caleb Femi. This year's prize was chaired by Bernadine Evaristo and Joelle Taylor, and we were so thrilled to be invited to this year's awards and get to watch and listen to the incredible shortlisted authors share their work. Today, I am grateful to be joined by winner of Best Collection at the 2023 Forward Prizes for Poetry, Jason Allen Passant. Jason is a Jamaican poet and academic based in Leeds. He works as a senior lecturer in critical theory and creative writing at the University of Manchester and is the author of two poetry collections and a non-fiction book, Scanning the Bush, which will be published in 2024. His first collection, Thinking with Trees, was published by Carsonet Press in 2021 and won the 2022 OCM Bocas Prize for Poetry. Chatting to me about his latest award-winning collection, Self-Portrait as Othello, Jason, welcome to a pair of bookends thank you Hannah it's great to be here thank it's you. so great to have you now we before we get on to your collection which I'm so excited to talk about we always like to start our interviews by asking what you are currently reading I'm currently reading Bad Diaspora Poems by Mumtaza Mary A Change in the Air by Jane Clark and I'm reading another book Never Was by my colleague Gareth Gavin who's a a novelist and works with me in the Centre for New Writing and Never Was is their second novel. That's what I'm reading at the moment. I actually saw Never Was the other day and I was going to pick it up when I was in Blackwells in Manchester and I picked it up and then it was one of those where I had to tell myself, no, Hannah, you can't buy any more books today. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my reason for not having read it yet is that... Yeah. I had to tell myself, no, you're not buying any more books. No, I, I completely feel you. I've been in that position. I mean, I'm in that position all the time. Stacks of good... books galore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. If you see my living room right now. <laughs> <laughs> if you saw my whole house right now, it's full full of books. And I was so excited as well to see that um, you work in my home city, Manchester. How is Manchester treating you? It's been lovely so far. I still need to take some time to really properly get to know the city, Mm. go into the nooks and crannies. But I love when I get to go to events there. I've been to a few events in Manchester Lit Fest, during Manchester Lit Fest. And each time I get a a chance to discover a new little area. But people-wise, it's great. Um, There's so much energy. There's Mm -hmm. so many, there's so much in the arts. Uh, It's Art, 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 arts-wise, it's so rich. 
so much theater, so much, there's so much going on in Manchester. It's almost yeah. too late sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all good. I love it. Yeah, I'm so pleased. And you know what? I I also saw that you, you live in Leeds as well, don't you? I do. I do. How long have you lived in Leeds? Seven years now. Wow. I was really surprised, actually, when I went to the awards at Leeds Playhouse at just how amazing that, that space is. I've never been in that space before. And actually, there's so much going on in Leeds and I didn't even realise. And I just think, you know, maybe if people could fund the arts in the north a bit more, we uh, could... <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. But... <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's, that's another conversation. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, Leeds is a quieter city than Manchester, yeah. right? Yeah, Manchester is is obviously even internationally it's much better known and all of that. But um, there 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 is a lot of good stuff about Leeds, and that playhouse is recently renovated as well. It's mm. looking nice and snazzy. Now thinking back to the the ceremony of the Forward Prizes for Poetry, because when they announced your name as winner you actually took a moment to come out and I don't know if this was purposeful or not but you took a moment before you came out and when you came out if I remember rightly the first thing you said was oh my god what is this (laughs) you noticed that I I noticed that that. I was wondering if people noticed that because I keep on looking back at the clip. So first of all, when you're in these situations that like you don't really know what's happening to you, it's all going so fast and you you like you, you don't have the time to process it, right? Mm-hmm. But what I remember is hearing my name and I was con- like, I really thought at that point I was not going to win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not because I don't think my book is, I, I think it's a great book. I I if I may say so myself, I Are really you love. It. May say so yourself, absolutely. <laughs> it's 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 a strong book, and I know it's it's yeah. a winning book. But you know, when you come to this kind of level, you've got you know there are a lot of great poets out there, mm-hmm. and judges have to choose, and you know you might not always get picked. Yeah. And so I I was believing. And I think if I'm honest, I think I was just, I just started to get so overwhelmed as well, realizing that shit, they might, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Swearing is fine. <laughs> <laughs> just realizing that they might actually pick me, like mm. hell, I might actually win the forward prize for best collection. And just knowing, I remember when Kai Miller won in 2014 and I absolutely idolized Kai Miller and his work. Um, I remember when other people won, like um, Caroline Bird. I remember when Claudia Rankin won, for goodness sake. You know, like these big names in poetry that I absolutely idolize. Mm-hmm. I'm just got so overwhelmed thinking that, my God, it could actually be me. And that it's weird to say, but that thought completely paralyzed me as well. So it was a mixture of both. I did think I had a good chance of winning, but it was also that as well, just thinking how insane it is to be here Mm. now. (laughs) And so, yeah, um, I remember just sitting on the bench. um, It was a little chair that (laughs) we were all sitting on these (laughs) iron metal, metal, metallic chairs. And I heard Bernadina Evarista start to read out the description. And I was like, that sounds like me. But let me just listen straight to the end. And 
when she said, and the winner of the 2023 Forward Prize for Best Collection is Jason Allen Pizar. I was like, um, it just took me a few seconds to, to yeah. get up. I couldn't, yeah. And I know you're meant to just get up and run out, but... <laughs> so no, I, I think I it's did, lovely. I, you enjoyed that moment. You processed yeah, it. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I did wonder if people noticed that. Well, <laughs> clearly, clearly you did. <laughs> I noticed because I was like, when's it coming out? <laughs> But I was just curious, you know, about what that experience was like for you, because obviously winning is very different for every individual, you know, people react in totally different ways to different situations. And, I, you know, I appreciate that. So I was just curious what it was like for you and, you know, what, what you were clearly in shock. And yeah, I just wanted to know how you felt in that moment, because it's, it is, as you say, it's, you know, it isn't a winning collection. Well, I mean, it literally is, but it, it very much deserves that title. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Um, so that's how I felt. Um, it was a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you, everybody takes in this sort of thing in stages, right? So yeah. at that point, it was the exhilaration the sort mm -hmm. of adrenaline and not knowing what to say but I did prepare a speech so I wasn't like completely just <laughs> babbling um and it's just it's just really good to be seen by the poetry community like this well I should say by the judges and I think there are like five of them so that feels good as well or four or five can't remember but it just feels good to be seen by such a wide variety like mm -hmm. Of people who are saying that, hey, we are choosing your book as the best collection of out of the 200 and whatever that we got. It's it's, it's insane, really. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be really lovely for our listeners to hear some of your collection. So would you mind reading your first pick for us? Yeah, I'm going to read this poem called To Find Mama's Voice, which is from the third part of the collection and I know a lot of people love this and I just feel like reading this one this morning <laughs> to find mama's voice I look for mama's voice in Dropbox and all devices anywhere I may have inadvertently captured the sound back when I didn't think her voice would be everywhere and yet nowhere to be found the real thing I hear it all the time right here filling the space. What if I could produce the grain, the texture and timbre by some fluke? One day, by some intervention, some freak of nature, and something was on hand to record? One day I may open my mouth to speak and her voice will leap out so strangers who never knew her might hear it. I must find it. But where? Mommy has no recordings. Cousin Lee has not preserved it either. No one thought we would want it. And why have on tape what we have in our heads all the time? What would be the use of sharing the sound? To run Mama's voice over the tips of our fingers to know her now as we've never known her before that's to find mama's voice i need a poet to read to me every friday morning that was bliss 
<laughs> that is it's such a beautiful poem and I re- I'm so glad that you read that one I really love that one but before I, I go into individual poems I would love to hear you speak a bit more about the inspiration behind the whole collection how did you go about putting this together where did it start for you what was the kind of first poem that that came to become this mm. that's a, yeah that's a really Good question to start with, Hannah. So I would say this all started with me around 2012. I was in Oxford at the time as a student. I was doing my doctorate and um, I'd just come to England, moved to England to live. And I started writing poems, as so many people do, as a way of remembering home and processing memory and what is what are my memories and what is memory for me if that Mm -hmm. makes sense and so I was just writing poems and I think in that situation you start writing poems because you are away from home because I think there's this thing there's something that looking back at home from elsewhere does to you Mm -hmm. and it, it it's beginning of a writing process for many for many people for me it was and I remember early versions of, of some of these poems started getting ri- ri- written uh, at that time. So, for instance, in the very first section, uh, there are three sections of the book, by the way. I'll talk a little bit about that. You could look at them as like the three acts of a, of a play, probably. But they could also be like the three movements of a, a symphony or a, a musical piece. Three, three was important. But in that first section, which is depending on how you look at it, a long narrative poem or a series of individual poems. And if you, you'll have noticed that I don't title them like they're on individual pages, but they don't have a title. And I I wanted that to sort of, that was purposeful. I'll, I'll come back to that. But there were bits of those that I started writing. And you know, in the writing process, how the writing process goes, you hone them, you you change them, you edit, you develop, and they, they become different things as time goes on. So yeah, to, to cut a long story short, I started writing some of this in 2012. So we could say that this started in 2012 mm-hmm. in Oxford. But as time went on, the ideas started to resonate with each other in different ways and, and produce different resonances. And fast forward to around before I actually wrote and published my first book, so this would be about 2015, mm-hmm. actually, a mentor of mine, Patrick McGuinness, he's a, he's a professor at one of the colleges in Oxford. He said, while looking at an early draft of part one, he looked at something that I said about Othello and Desdemona, and he said, why don't you develop this Othello theme into something larger why don't you just like stay with it and see where it goes I would love to see more around this because I think I'd I'd said something which is what's in that poem if Othello if if Shakespeare was in Othello's skin or something like that anyway it sounds much more poetic I promise you than, than, than that and so I stayed with that idea. I didn't pursue it because then my first book, Thinking with Trees, came in like a fast moving train. And I had to write that and get that out there. So and I also think I needed to. It was the time was the timing wasn't right yet. And after publishing Thinking with Trees, I came back to this project. And that's where I started moving actively with 
Shakespeare's play Othello and the figure of Othello as a container device. You see what I mean? Like almost as a, a holder for so many of these ideas that I was looking at, grappling with identity, the foreigner, being a foreigner, mm -hmm. being a dark-skinned foreigner in a white space, mm -hmm. movement, languages, and, and so on and so on. And I saw, suddenly started to see Othello starting start to take shape almost as a, a ghost returning to, as I say in this first poem that begins the book, like his journey isn't finished, like he's still walking the space and he's sort of living through me and <laughs> <laughs> and sort of presumptuous, as I say, right? And another person, like almost as if a journey left unfinished and mm -hmm. there was a calling out to another writer to pick up his narrative mm -hmm. and to write him again to say okay storyteller what have you got to say in 2023 what are you saying now and I just ran with that and you know I did actually run with that because it just struck me how according to Desdemona in Shakespeare's play talking to the you know to the people, you know, who I'm talking about. Like, mm -hmm. his, why she fell in love with him was because of his storytelling. Like, he was a great storyteller, you know. That's what, that's what got her. Like, these stories about adventures and hairbreadth scapes, as she calls them, you know, narrow escapes in war and, like, all this heroic bad boy stuff, I guess. <laughs> and I wanted to... To kind of like step into that space and to say, okay, so where is he from? Mm -hmm. Where did he come from to come here? You know, if he was a foreigner in Venice, he couldn't have been speaking. He must have had a, a different language. Mm -hmm. What was his language? You know, what was his mother tongue? What's that background that, anyway, I'm sure we can talk more about that. But I, I'm, that was a, the opening for me. And that was like the process. So it was a building process where... Everything didn't come all, all at once. It really came in layers and stages. And I think time is so important because if I had rushed to write this book, this book would not have been or looked anything like what it was today. I think I really appreciate the fact that it took me literally, what, 10 years to write? And that's the thing that people don't even imagine sometimes. Yeah, A book can take you 10 years to write and then you can write other books along the way. Mm -hmm. But then you really wait for the right timing, for the right process, for all the layers to come together. And I'm so grateful because the layering of it is what people feel right now. Mm -hmm. I hear when I hear people talk about it, they talk about these these things that they can't always put their finger on, yeah. but they're feeling those layer layerings of time. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that. It is so incredibly layered, and I really wish that I could spend hours with you talking about the collection because I feel like there is so much about this to about this collection to unpick and explore and and I'm sure you know many people will have many conversations about this collection I would have loved to have studied this collection when I was when I was studying you know it's incredible and poetry is something that I'm fairly new to. You know, I, I read a lot of, of novels and fiction and nonfiction, but I, I've unfortunately not read a lot of poetry, but it's something that I'm incredibly interested in. And this was just such a, a great collection for me to come to in my sort of, as I'm starting to approach new poetry. 
And you've just been speaking about the the links with with Othello, and there is the obvious reference in the title, and there are references and direct quotes throughout. But there is a moment, there's, there's a quote, sorry, from the collection where you say, I'm haunted as much by the character Othello as by the silences in the story. And I'd love to know what you meant by that. Yeah. So in a nutshell, what I meant by that was the, what I call the the missing backstory mm-hmm. behind a, a play like Othello or or what Shakespeare would have had to his mind when when he wrote this play so i'm i'm just really interested that he did write this play this is mm-hmm. this is really fascinating stuff because it's the it's not the only play of his where you've got a dark-skinned person like you could look at the, the, in the tempest you've got caliban which is like caliban is is almost like not just a person it's it's like a really problematic kind of figure right and mm. Like you already hear the the palindrome, like the res the the way it sounds like cannibal, right? So that's already something really weird. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a so with that ex- with the exception of that, it's Shakespeare's only play where you've got like the protagonist is a dark skinned mm-hmm. man, a dark skinned foreigner in Venice, which is a European city, and. He's not just any dark skinned man. He is he is like a ruler. He's like a big thing, right? He is um he's like a general. He's he's really a big wig in the space. Mm-hmm. Right? So because we don't have a lot of documents and a lot of history uh, around black people in Venice around that time, because historians haven't been interested enough to kind mm-hmm. of chronicle, you know, this famous adage that if history were written by the by the losers, you know, what would history be like? Or, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, that thing is like history has been written by white European people. Well, European people. And so because of all of that and we know what all of that entails and, you know, race and racism and all of mm-hmm. that, we don't have enough of a picture of what Venice looked like and mm-hmm. what face of Venice looked like. But we do have a, a picture. We do have like the, the the paintings and we do have like, you know, enough records to understand that in Venice at the time, you had a lot of Africans. Mm-hmm. They were actually comfortably there and they were actually integrated. And that interests me that Shakespeare would have wanted to write a play about that. So in a sense, it's almost a kind of historical of historical value. I don't know. Is it a record of some kind? I've kind of gone far a bit far from your question but that is part of what brought me to Shakespeare now where the silences in this story that bit about the silences in this story comes in is wanting to think okay if he was so interested in all of this why did why did we not get more of Othello it's a fictional character but why did we not get more about what's the background of this fictional character where are you drawing him from you know, um, is he from the River Gambia, which is where I put him? Is he from, you know, what what's the language that he spoke? You know, like mm-hmm. I wanted more of a rounded, developed character rather mm-hmm. than a stand-in for. I think, uh, like uh, on a major level, Othello is like a stand-in for ideas. Do you see what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he's like a stand-in for like for for ideas about black people rather than like a fully rounded character 
-hmm. in and of himself. I don't know if I'm making sense. No, you absolutely are. Yeah. And also, also I, I think I think that's what I'm look what I was looking for when mm -hmm. I'm in that sentence. What what I was getting at. I wanted more of the backstory. Give me more of the backs. The you're imagining this character, but can you imagine a black man? with a backstory, mm -hmm. with like that cultural background and that individuality of mm -hmm. what a real person looks like, you know, what was his mother, where, 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 you know, what was his, what was his family background? Like, I felt that, I felt like I, I was needing that and I felt I wanted to flag that up, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember Bernadine Everisto described your collection as a poetic memoir and I wondered how you felt about that, that sort of phrase about your collection and how you, when you're writing, how much of yourself do you position in your work and how much do you keep removed, if that makes sense? Yeah. No, it does make sense. So it is a poetic memoir, mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's also clearly doing other things, as we've yeah, said. Yeah. It's, I think it, you can take it and you can read it as a poetic memoir. And I like that. Because I, that's just neat and just just a, a a good a good thing to have. And I think clearly I've seen so far how people read this collection differently. Different people take such different conclusions from it and mm -hmm. and kind of highlight different strands. So yeah, I'm I am comfortable with that. How much of I, myself I put in it? I do put a lot of myself in it. I wouldn't I wouldn't hide that. You know, like a a part of the the wager of this going in was how could I write myself while being while being true and and I think that there's a collective wisdom that suggests to us that we need to hold a lot back or there are certain things that you can't talk about mm -hmm. because certain subjects might be too intimate or too yeah. close to the bone or mm -hmm. too close for comfort um I wanted to challenge that not because I want to talk about myself but because I want to get to deeper truths like in that um, situation. And I think that some of the most important truths and things to be to talk about are in the uncomfortable zones, the thing yeah. that you're not comfortable talking about. And when I look back at these pages, I can say, yeah, I'm really happy that I did talk about things. Do I, I think when you write about yourself, you are curating. Like, because mm -hmm. you have to, you have to choose. So there's probably, I mean, it is me, but it's also, it's also more than me. If you see what I mean, it's when, when the speaker talks about going to the theater, going to the opera. I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> going to the theater every night, going broke to find my bourgeois language. <laughs> Um, my bourgeois style and of <laughs> you know those moving in those spaces yes it's me but it's also it's also every other person who looks like me that experience mm -hmm. is so real so I guess what I'm saying is that when you write about yourself I think I could do no better than writing about myself in these true ways because that's how I make the experience bigger than myself it's kind of ironic I'm paradoxical to say, but when you really get to the truth of what your ex your experience, that's when you probably start to talk to other people. 
So yeah, I hope I've answered your question. I'm you like, absolutely I'm have. Not just waffling and trying to like. Not at all. No, I could listen look, to you all day. Look, like no, it. I, I can't hide in this collection. Like it's yeah. some of it. Is so it's so raw, right? It's mm -hmm. raw. <laughs> yeah, and and I I'm sorry again to read back a, another quote from the collection, but as you said, it's very it's very raw, and there are so many. I unfortunately read the, the PDF version of your collection, but I'm absolutely buying it, buying the physical form because I am that uh, annoying person, annoying reader that likes to fold down pages that I enjoy. I like to underline things. <laughs> and some people think I'm a bit of a heathen for that, but I really enjoy doing it. So <laughs> I want to get hold of a physical copy in order to do this. But there is a, a quote that really stuck with me from the poem Door of No Return. And it is, I bear his name, meaning stories without a body. He disappeared before I was born. Disappearing is part of our way in the world. We understand this world through disappearance. And I know that so much so much of the poems in this collection are very layered and can mean multiple things, but you do explore a lot of themes of, of masculinity and you explore, as we heard um, in the poem that you read earlier, to is it to find Mama's voice? Find Mama's voice. Find yeah. Mama's voice, yeah. As we heard in, when you read that poem, you draw a lot of connections between a sort of child's relationship to their mother and a child's relationship to their father and... I think in this we see somebody mourning an absent father and there's a whole other conversation about the way society regards black fathers anyway which I was wondering if you were challenging that but I wanted to hear you speak a little bit more about the way you explored masculinity and the way you explored this sort of relationship with the, this absent father because you never kind of go into it with resentment or rage which we often see when those stories are represented you know if we see it on tv or film we see somebody that's furious at a father not wanting to have a relationship with them but you never have that quality in these poems it's just this very moving and powerful exploration of it but without yeah. any of that could you yeah. talk a bit more about yeah. that yeah <laughs> i feel you except when i do say middle finger to you uh, well yes there's that <laughs> Oh, like I get what you mean because even when I say that, it's still kind of playful in the yes, tone. Yes, yeah. So yes, I I get what you mean. Um, and you are right. I I I think that absence of rage or not wanting to come at it with that time worn attitude mm -hmm. of rage and I'm so angry and about this is because I wanted to look at it from a broader lens. Mm because I realized that there are broader issues at play, meaning, okay, I bear his name, meaning stories without a body. He disappeared before I, before I was born. Yes, he did. But is there a larger history that's, that's at play here? Is, mm -hmm. is there something historical that goes where it, when it comes to black male, black males in mm -hmm. the West Indies? that are like descendants of enslaved enslaved men and who've who've learned the attitudes who've um who bear the trauma of that enslavement in their bodies and who are still playing out a lot of the a, a, a lot of what their forefathers 
had to had to go through and mm -hmm. and taught them you know whether directly or indirectly mm -hmm. because we learn so many things in both ways right directly and indirectly we we come up as young black boys and we we learn things with them and without anybody having to to say you know this is that and you know you're acting like this you you know you you're 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 acting like this because because x y and z we just pick up things out because of our history so what i'm saying is a lot of our ancestors were breeders um i'm gonna say it as it is there you had you know breeding farm was a was a thing in mm -hmm. slavery you know where men were just looked just considered as a a, a breeder you know like they were they were slaves were like chattel you know, they were like, you know, you know what chattel are, you know, like they're animals, you know, they had a similar status. And so when, you know, you didn't have nuclear families, you know, <laughs> the nuclear family is a, is a, is a bourgeois, is a, is, is a thing that no, you know, people, we, we, I want to say like, we are, we're told to step into that and, and, and embody that. But Think of our history. Think of where we're coming from. There's a lot of that that gets passed down. And there's a lot of that that young men are fighting against um, and grappling with, mm -hmm. trying to straighten out our history, trying to, to do good. And, and some of it just gets acted out. So in the Caribbean and in Jamaica, where I'm from, you have a lot of absentee fathers. And this is obviously not to excuse or justify any of that but sometimes men who just have enough baby mother <laughs> you know lots of baby mothers all over the place are just playing out what they've learned and um there's so much structural inequalities that allow for this this sort of thing so i want to look at i wanted to look at history in this section hannah and that's the purpose of part five to say okay you've got the absent father, the father who just leaves without looking back. But how 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 do you look at that in seventeen hundred or in in sixteen seventy or in eighteen hundred? Mm -hmm. My father, I address you as you crouch in the dark corner. You know, it's it's my father, but it's also the father in a bigger sense. Mm -hmm. as well, you know, and I'm glad that people people get that as well. Yeah, I think the way that you explored these things, it was it was incredibly powerful because you're not only looking at what black men have been grappling with historically and like you said, all these learned things, these things that they pick up from the environments that they're moving in and these white spaces, but also, you know, you've brought it into a contemporary sense. And uh, we saw that in the, the poem, uh, I, I, nothing sounds good in my voice, but it's, it's placed... Yeah, yeah but, you knew what I was gonna say. Yeah, but I don't expect people to pronounce if you don't speak French. I mean, <laughs> want, I mean it's like but yeah, place de la nation. Place de la nation. And yeah. that was for Amord Arbre. Yes. And I thought that was such a powerful piece, not only because we know the story of of him, but we, you know, we know over the last few years we've seen it, you know, we've been bombarded on the news with these horrendous stories of what black men have to deal with on a daily basis, you know, and black men's bodies being objectified and being fetishized. And I already told you that 
Um, one of my favorites in the collection was um, self-portrait as my body on an operating table because of its structure and the way that piece comes alive. But I think also Place de la Nation, I can't pronounce it, but I think, you know, the way that you you use those ideas in, in these two poems is so powerful because, you know, even in Place de la Nation, you say that he's he's just walking down the street and he says something like muscular looks very threatening on him and that's something that has been picked up and when he's observing the the brother and sister that are sat and he's saying they look so beautiful you know I'm looking at them and they look this is obviously not a direct quote at all but he's looking at them and they look so beautiful and they're they're so young and and one day that beauty is going to be taken away from them because they're they're going to be attacked for that beauty and for who they are and you know there's something so deeply disturbing about that I mean I don't really have a question on that I just wanted to to comment on that no yeah I appreciate your comments on that um and I would say that they will still have their beauty but it it will be taken from them Mm -hmm. um in the sense that the society will deny them. Yes, yeah. That beauty um, and that childhood innocence mm-hmm. and that grace, tenderness that it accords to uh, other children yeah. won't necessarily be granted to them. It's a reality, right? Yeah. Um, we know that not everybody will be like that, but we're in, we live in a system that doesn't extend the same grace to Black children yes does to white children and that's obviously so sad or to black young men mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> when i say children i'm thinking about it <laughs> in a broader sense right mm-hmm. say to black young men mm-hmm. or black young women as it does to white children or white teenagers yeah, yeah. and so that the idea of of grace and what that what that means in the capacity to give a second chance mm-hmm. to look at the mitigating factors to look at the broader context to kind of you know grace means that when somebody uh, does something that's not necessarily the best thing we can sometimes take a step back and look at broader context and be willing to kind of overlook to forgive to think twice about to about them and to remember that these are teenagers Mm -hmm. and because they're teenagers and children, they need grace, but we don't always have so often that's not extended to black, black people don't get that. Black children don't don't get that second look Mm -hmm. at forgiving grace. And I guess, you know, that was at play here to think about this young man, Ahmad Arbery, who was just gunned down brutally Mm-hmm. Because he was out having a jog, taking a jog, sorry, mm-hmm. in a white neighborhood. And I, I, it was necessary for me to use this snippet out of what one of the, the shooters said, yeah. of what he said. Um, that's a literal quote. And he's running right now. There he goes right now. Because there's something, there was something quite, what's the word? Almost absurdly brutal. That mm-hmm. rem- me of slavery and that just ridiculous way of seeing like there he goes right now it's like almost a moving target yeah and so but I don't want to for me I need to be careful of re-performing and reenacting violence mm-hmm. which is why that section that that section about beauty and grace looms larger 
I yeah. wanted it to, to be bigger. I wanted mm -hmm. to come away with a picture of beauty and grace. Mm -hmm. um, and can I say beauty again? Um, <laughs> of in in looking at these children and hence the words and nobody should be wrong to be so beautiful in this world it's two beautiful dark-skinned children just innocently sitting there on a bench I want to describe them to let the reader see them mm -hmm. um, the beautiful lines of what's the what's the what's the line the grain of skin the beautiful teeth and and to just if I if I can give the violence part in brushstrokes, I think that the reader can piece back that for themselves. You see what yeah. I mean? Rather yeah. than me like writing out the violence. Like I think that's so important actually mm -hmm. to avoid re-traumatizing. And especially for us black people, we have to think about how do we how do we present our beauty to the world rather than the narrative that's being uh, written about us. Well, I have just seen the time and I am very upset because I'm aware that I can't keep you all day and chat to you all day even though I think you're incredible and I love your collection and there is so much more that I could speak about but I would really love for our listeners to hear another poem from you so would you mind giving us a final reading? Yes thank you so much Hannah and it's really <laughs> great I've loved this conversation. Thank you. I'm going to read self-portrait as my body in an operating theater. <laughs> that's a, I don't know if that's a Freudian slip or something. Self-portrait as my body. The poem is called Self-Portrait as my body on an operating table. Right? Let's the oversized penis juts out into a pool of guffaws. I laugh embarrassed at myself. There you are. You too are laughing. Am I visible? This my body on an operating table? Disown the terror of your laugh. I am a mound of stone. They tell me they were just being silly. Just this oversized penis on a life-size black doll. They tell me they didn't realize. For isn't she lovely? How they danced, pranced gyrated how they ran in the streets around the fountain in the parisian night at place gambetta how i saw the pictures though no one said a word and how i pretended that what i saw was not seen i love that poem so much and i said you know i said before about the way that it's structured it just comes alive on the page and it has this really beautiful musicality to it. So it was so great to, to hear you read those words aloud. Thank you so much. I, as I said, I would love to keep you. <laughs> but my final question to you is what is next for you? So coming out next is a book called Engagements with Amy Césaire. Um, the subtitle is Thinking with Spirits. Um, mm -hmm. Engagements with Amy Césaire, Thinking with Spirits. And that's being published by Oxford University Press. It's a book about ecology and an intersection with Black history and um, Black living um, with the earth. And so people interested in what's happening now with the climate crisis and ecological destruction and how poetry can intervene in that discussion will be interested in that book. 
it really is looking at poetry as an entry point into living with non-human um, other than human life and that's coming out in february with oxford university press now don't let don't let that be don't let that scare you people i have not written the book in a highfalutin way <laughs> know that I could you know like Oxford University Press people hear that and like oh that's not you know mm. um, it's going to be written in a, like a, a forbidding language but mm. I've really written this book in a poet's way and yeah. you will find my poet sensibility in that in that mm -hmm. book so I hope that people will engage with that but after that it's also something that I'm working on at the moment you mentioned that in, in the introduction I have a Creative nonfiction book. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah. Rap, rap. Yes. <laughs> My first creative prose book. I don't know what to call it. Memoir. Let's call it a memoir. It's coming out with Hutchinson Heinemann. And it's actually it has a different title currently. It's called The Possibility of Tenderness. Mm. And it's about there will be a lot of on masculinity and plants. Ooh, it's different. Mm. Um, plants. The it's like leaning back into childhood innocence for a black man living in Britain. It's plants, it's masculinities, it's memoir of growing up in Jamaica um, with a herbalist grandmother looking at all of that. So it's it's a very tactile, physical book um, around green life and green spaces and, and just plants having hands in the soil. Yeah, and I hope that People will love that as well. It's another poet's poet sensibility book. Yeah. Amazing. I cannot wait to read more of your work. And for our listeners, I will be popping a link in the show notes to um can they pre-order that book yet? The um the Oxford the OUP book, the one the Oxford University Press, they can pre-order. Um, non-fiction yeah. non not available yet you, okay you, okay yeah. i'm too eager <laughs> but i will also pop a link for them to buy um self-portrait as othello and also your first collection as well jason thank you so much for joining me today this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much hannah uh it's it was it was great chatting with you thank you and for our listeners can they follow you anywhere on social media yeah, would love to for people to follow me if you like what I'm chatting about. I am at Jalen Payson, so J Allen Payson, all together. Amazing. At J Allen Payson, both on Insta and on Twitter. Perfect. And for our listeners, you can also follow us at Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so we can reach more of you. And thank you so much for listening. Bye.